when we see a material next time that's fallen apart, we shouldn't even be talking about it as a waste. We should be saying, well, wait a minute, this is now a resource that's just waiting to be brought to life in a whole new form. Welcome, everyone, to 100 Climate Conversations. Thank you so much for joining us. Today is number 10 of 100 Conversations. The series presents 100 visionary Australians that are taking positive action to respond to the most critical issue of our time, which is climate change. Celebrated as a great period of technological innovation, the Industrial Revolution resulted in the release of billions of tonnes of carbon dioxide into the air, causing the climate crisis. And in the context of this architectural artefact, we're now shifting our focus towards the innovations of the net zero revolution. Yuridu Marangmaji, Ray Johnston Yuwanadi, Wiradjuri Yinabaladu. My name is Ray Johnston. Hello, friends. I'm a Wiradjuri woman. I was born and raised, though, on Darug and Gundagata country, and that's where I hold responsibilities to community and country. And it is an honour to be working here today on the unceded land of the Gadigal, and I wish to pay my deepest respects to their elders past and present. I also want to extend that respect to any of my First Nations brothers and sisters, aunties and uncles that are here with us today or tuning in, watching. And I think as we begin today's conversation, it's important to remember and acknowledge that the sovereign First Nations peoples of this continent are the world's first technologists and scientists and engineers from the world's oldest continuing cultures, despite all attempts to erase them. And that's something that we should all be very proud of. I'm lucky in my field, I get to hear some good news. So I am very excited today to be chatting to the incredible Venus Sahajwala. <laughs> Visionary inventor, Professor Venus Sahajwala, sees waste as an opportunity. And through her work as Director of the Sustainable Materials Research and Technology Centre at the University of New South Wales, she's engineering new ways to combat and find value in waste that drive down manufacturing's carbon footprint. I'm a big fan and I am very thrilled to be speaking to her today. Thank you, Ray, for that very generous introduction <laughs> and very kind of you. And thank you for having me. This is, uh, this is fun. This is what I love doing, chatting to people who are so passionate about what we all can do about this important topic. And you have been working in sustainability and waste for decades now. Do you remember when talk of climate change started entering the discussion about your work? It's quite interesting in the early days when I'd sort of talk about what we're doing in developing green steel, usually the conversation would be like, why do we need to even do it? Why bother? You know, why are we talking about using materials other than coal and coke in the production of steel. So it was almost like you had to start with that conversation that said, no, actually, this is going to be better for our planet. Mm. Before you even get into a lot of the scientific and engineering details, I had to literally have a conversation that tried to tell everyone why it was so important for us to be able to think about green steel and make green steel. It's an opportunity that I've had and, and really that privilege 
um, you know, to go from something that's been conceptually um, innovative to be able to take all of that science and engineering coming out of, um, you know, my labs at UNSW at the Smart Center and to be able to then kind of be able to tell the world the story of why we're doing this, how we're getting there. It's really nice that we've got industries who have worked with us and have partnered with us over the years. I think to me, that's also an important thing to celebrate and to recognize the fact that being able to translate all of that science into practice and to do that, um, you know, with our steelmaking partners and to be able to kind of really go to the heart of this question Mm. that you can always look at any material as fundamental as steel to be able to go back and say, no, wait a minute, we can actually invent green steel now and we can do it in a way that nobody else in the world is doing (laughs) that that gives me a lot of goosebumps, but also for our for our partners in in community and and in industry to be able to bring in things like waste tires mm. and to kind of show that well wait it's actually not waste really it's a fabulous raw material so I think to me that is so exciting the fact that you can kind of see waste tires in a whole new light and I remember in the early days the conversation was. What tires? What does it contain that can help it in the process of making steel? You know, aren't they just a stack of old tires that are no longer useful? Um, and I think to me, again, that was the fun moment when you you get a chance to talk about all that science and the development of science, but also mm. importantly, talk about all of that engineering. What does it mean in a practical sense? And that to me was was really that ultimate icing on the cake because we weren't just talking about we could do this in our labs or we could do all the brand new science, which I think is awesome. But I think the fact that we've got businesses who are literally hanging on to the words of, ah, there's a, a whole lot of hydrogen in here. So that horrible old tire if you found a way to use that in the making of green steel, it could liberate all these important molecules so mm-hmm. we could get hydrogen and then we could also get that carbon that you need to make steel and you don't have to potentially use coal and coke to do that. That concept, even that innovation in a conceptual sense has to be, has to be something that we nurture. and no matter how outrageous and crazy it might sound, um, because you just never know which of those concepts could be brought to life. And if we can bring it to life and we can show that it can have an impact and make it can make such a big difference, and we can be pioneering that right here in Australia, I love to be able to say that, yes, This is the first place where science happened on green steel and the innovation came to life where steel makers in Australia have been really committed to this. I think to me, that's that's the bit that, you know, really gives me hope for the future. We are going to be talking about a few you know, scientific topics today. Yeah. So I did, I did want to start with you know, maybe some basic definitions of some things so that we can yes. all follow along. So what is embodied 
carbon? Mm. And why is it important to consider not just the energy required to make a product, mm -hmm. but its whole life cycle? I think when we look at materials, all the things that we need to make our homes and our beautiful museums, places like this, and everything that we need, it requires materials. So fundamentally, we're talking about whether it's steel, whether it is our ceramic materials and polymers and all of these different materials. It requires energy, but it also requires basically all those molecules, right? So you think about all of that energy that's gone into making it and sourcing it and putting it into a form that makes it functional. But then when we say, okay, but wait a minute, now it stopped working in the current form. That doesn't mean that those materials and those molecules that went into making it in the first place are not useful anymore. So fundamentally, when we start to think about what went into making it, and if you could imagine for a moment, you could have this X-ray vision and you could look inside all these materials, those basic molecules that you have in there are basically building blocks of giving us this incredible sort of wealth of materials and products and everything that we need. But imagine if we could then say, but wait, after it stopped working, it's not a waste, mm. but it's actually a resource that's just waiting to find another life. So, you know, why are we even calling it a waste? So imagine <laughs> that whole sort of circular way of thinking could be real because we can imagine and reimagine over and over again all the different ways in which those materials could actually be reformed. And so when I talk about reform, I'm actually saying it goes beyond recycling. So yeah, absolutely, we should do the three R's, reduce, reuse, recycle. Those are the three R's we should be doing. But what we also have to say is we need to go beyond that three hours beyond recycling and saying, well, what if it can't be recycled in the traditional way of converting, you know, one plastic bottle into another plastic bottle and so on? That's a great thing we should be doing. Absolutely. But what if our products are more complex? What if they've now changed, you know, the, the way they're made? So we're going beyond that recycling and, and we're thinking about reform. So we're reforming its structure. We're reforming its chemistry. And so that's why when we think about, you know, the whole of life of mm. any particular material, it never stops being useful. And I love to think of the fact that the power of imagination is really with us. So if we're committed to the whole circular solutions and the way we think about how every material embodies those little, little packets of energy that went into making it, so that's your embodied carbon. But also, importantly, all that feedstock, all that material that went into making that product, that material never dies. Mm. So imagine if we could not only preserve those materials, but if we could keep bringing it back to life over and over again. But to do that, we need to actually rethink the way we talk manufacturing. So when we see a material next time, that's fallen apart. We shouldn't even be talking about it as a waste. <laughs> we should be saying, well, wait a minute, this is now a resource that's just waiting to be brought to life <laughs> in a whole new form. And it doesn't matter who does it. 
uh, whether it's the person who's making your buildings or the person who's making your electronic devices or, or somebody who knows how to do amazing work with repair. So that's why it's a holistic way of thinking about the benefits. There are environmental benefits, there are social benefits, economic benefits. So all of these benefits for our communities is what is at the heart of, you know, why we need to think about circularity, why we need to think about what our communities can do collectively. You spoke yeah. about how much has changed since you began. And we've yeah. made a lot of progress in the areas of renewables and mm-hmm. electricity generation. But some of the industrial processes that you're talking about, of our, our most consumed <laughs> materials, yeah. we still need to change those. There mm. still needs to be some solutions. So from your perspective, what is the significance of industry and manufacturing when it comes to climate change? Mm. Yeah, look, absolutely. These are important points, right? Because, you know, whatever you make in industries, you need all those resources like we were talking about, right? You need your energy, you need materials. And so if you can imagine in all of these cases, if you're able to use renewable energy, if you're able to think about your materials like we've talked about as as renewable materials so that they keep coming back to life over and over again, we can imagine that all kinds of factories, and in our case, the reason why we're saying micro-recycling needs to happen in an industrial setting. But what does that look like Mm. is what micro-factories are all about, that we think about recycling and manufacturing where the primary feedstock in terms of material is all of our waste resources. So this is what we need to start to think about, that production has to first and foremost be looking at what's available in my region. So if I know that there are certain kinds of waste resources that are going to come into my region, I need to imagine that kind of collaborative economy where we're not necessarily always relying on products being made in some other part of the world and coming in from overseas. I think first and foremost, really starting to think local, regional, you know, really is so empowering for our communities and for our businesses. Yes, it's about energy. Yes, it's about materials, but it's also about transport. You know, why do we need to think always everything must be, you know, made in some other part of the world or I need to wait for that particular component or that particular part to come from somewhere from overseas? Imagine a whole economy that's built off the back of, you know, people repairing, making printed objects and doing that from metals and, you know, we could be doing that from ceramics and plastics. And if we could actually imagine that economy that says, but wait a minute, I only need you know, 20 parts of that, I don't need to order (laughs) hundreds and hundreds of parts from somewhere else. I could go to that production guy who's in the town next door. And I know that girl there is really a cool designer. and, And I know that that other girl there loves to make all kinds of cool things in a micro factory. And that girl is me. <laughs> I love to think that, you know, we're sort of imagining a future where whether it's about our research, whether it's about how we work in universities, how we work in um, the technological space and manufacturing, we don't have to have all the answers on day one. Mm. But that's exactly the beauty of this kind of collaboration. We're developing a whole new way of thinking, that mindset that says, These are the feedstock materials we need. 
And we're going to create a whole ecosystem. And that ecosystem can show that different kinds of materials can always be moving around in our economy, in our societies. And that then enables all kinds of new businesses. I, I'm, I'm curious, you grew up in Mumbai. Yeah. And there's a very different relationship to waste there than, than we experience here growing up. And you've described in the past, you know, finding inspiration and in, in seeing how mm. those items are repaired and reused, how there's this whole economy of secondhand and yes. fixed products. And yeah. Tell me though about how waste is different mm. in Mumbai. Mm -hmm. How is mm -hmm. it viewed differently and how did it inspire you? I guess the first sort of you know point to make is I don't think anybody would call anything a waste in Mumbai. <laughs> <laughs> People would love to be able to be very clever and entrepreneurial and going, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's the guy down the road who's fixing your shoes. You could be wearing those pair of shoes for years and years and years, and that's what I do is, you know, yeah. go and get it repaired, get it repaired, and you can you can just see those simple things that, you know, we all can learn from each other, right? So the fact that I remember as a, as a kid having um, all those conversations with a guy down the street who, you know, loved to repair shoes and I'm sure I was a really annoying little kid who'd kind of wouldn't just want to get the shoes repaired, would want to find out a bit more about it. <laughs> so why'd you put that there? Why'd you do that? And, you know, as kids do, you know, and you never want to give up that curiosity and asking the whys. So I think to me that was, that was part of what I loved and the fact that everyone, even though I'm sure I was a pretty annoying little kid, <laughs> <laughs> everyone would take their time to have that conversation, right? So people would want to explain to you. I mean, all those, all those markets and those bazaars where you could find any spare part, any, any component, mm. and then someone would kind of go, okay, well, no, wait a minute, that bit there. Okay, now someone's brought in this old radio. I can fix that. I can take that piece from there and I can put that in here. And I think to me, I'd just love to see that happen. I could literally stand there and watch that all day long. And this is what I loved about, no matter how people were so busy and everyone's getting on with their life and their livelihoods and all of those things, I think the fact that you can never underestimate your ability to inspire a little kid because you could just be making such a big difference to their lives and to be, to be welcoming. And that's what I found in a place like Mumbai where I grew up. I do want to talk more about the green steel mm -hmm. that you've been working on because you know, we've been producing steel mm -hmm. the same way, mm -hmm. using fossil fuels for centuries. Mm. Why is it important to really look at and redesign how we are manufacturing steel? What kinds of impacts can it have mm. to make those materials in a different way? What impacts on the climate can mm. it have? Yeah, look, I mean, traditionally, of course, as everyone um, realizes, and as you've mentioned, you know, people have been using coal and coke in the production of steel. And there are sort of different ways in which you can make steel. Mm. So you've got to think about that whole of systems way of saying, OK, why not? I want to make steel. But what does that mean in terms of the way I bring that feedstock, that material, that resource in the production. So what that then means is if you were actually introducing and if you wanted to introduce hydrogen inside that furnace, the best thing you can do is you can actually find a way in which it doesn't actually require a whole lot of new things that cost you too much money and too much time to do it. So for us, 
part of that urgency in terms of addressing the impact on uh, on our climate was, but wait a minute, but we already got these steel-making furnaces. You know, this is how it's made. But what if we could, through our polymer injection technology, bring in that hydrogen directly inside the furnace, but we do it in a way by using waste resources like tires, mm. because under certain conditions in the way those reactions happen to make that metal, it requires a reducing agent. That reducing agent um, could be derived from coal and coke, but it also could use tires. Mm. And the fact that you break those molecules down to those small molecules and liberate that hydrogen, that carbon that you need in the process of making steel. But you do that because you can very cleverly control how it reacts inside the furnace. So a lot of that details of that science and engineering meant that we had to actually prove that. Yeah. First in our labs, we had to show that in our labs, those kinds of reactions were taking place. And the best analogy I can give you there is my favorite drink, coffee. Coffee, as <laughs> some of you who might love your coffee, Certainly has got, yes. <laughs> yes, I know we've talked about it in the morning today. Um, and I've had my first cup already. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm charged. <laughs> and in this case, literally with the steel making furnace, the reason why I wanted to use the coffee and the, and the example of charge is that the ability to have this foam, this mm. slag foam, literally like your cappuccino um, foam on the top of your coffee, is that it, it is an essential part in that steel making process. So the fact that we have injected this polymer, so you can imagine and visualize, you've got this injection lance going inside that steel making furnace, you've liberated those little, little pieces of tires that has gone into the furnace and nice clean material reacted in a way that it has now allowed that iron oxide to be reduced to iron which is the metal mm -hmm. that steel is made of you've now created a metallic output by liberating that hydrogen and that carbon in that steel making furnace and allowed for that conversion of iron oxide into iron. And ultimately all of these kind of changes that we are talking about, all these important ways in which we do our manufacturing allows us to then completely reimagine how scientifically you control those reactions right down at that micro level. You launched the world's first e-waste microfactory in University of New South Wales. That was back in 2018, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And now you've got the West Nowra microfactory as well that's opening soon. Can you tell me about what waste materials are being used in those microfactories? What, what's being made in these microfactories? Yeah. And can we all just order something from them? <laughs> How do they work? Uh, as you know, I'm so passionate about using all kinds of waste resources for production. And so microfactory really just started literally in our labs um, at UNSW where the goal really was if the dominant feedstock that we're using for manufacturing is actually a waste material, mm. uh, we are going to actually set up our own modules 
to be able to step by step take that waste through a journey where it comes to life in a whole new form. So literally microfactory is a collection of modules and it's modular by nature where you can actually have these modules control each of those modules in a different way so they can be quite different and that's why it's very different to having sort of one big large scale production whereas thinking about micro factories in a modular setting really allows you to follow through different kinds of stages where you can very quickly transform that waste into yeah. the next product yeah. you've minimized how much effort goes in and processing goes in right. and you can control volumes so that's the best part you can still get that quality product but you can very quickly control that right scale and you can make it fit for purpose for us the nice thing about you know that partnership where mm. micro factory has now literally like a little child you know grown up and is ready yeah. to kind of make that first move leave home and go to a micro factory in in Nara um, for me that's that's such a privilege it's that joy of of seeing all that all that work that our scientists our engineers at smart center at UNSW have put in and for us um the partnership and the relationship with industry as i've been talking about in this particular instance is no different you yeah. know where we've got incredibly passionate people who who want to do this because fundamentally again they know that by putting their hard work into it and their passion and their commitment um into setting up this micro factory mm. they're going to make a difference to the world. And so in this particular case, it's about using waste glass and waste Okay, great. Yeah, yeah waste textiles. So those are the two um, you know, feedstock materials that That's are going That's what's being used. What are they making? No. What's coming out of these factories? No, I might have I might have um, Oh, yes, excellent. Got a little piece I think that that I think I had at the museum and so this, this is, is like a, <laughs> it's like a little ceramic tile yes. with bits of glass through it yeah that's Have right I got that right that's exactly right we call it our green ceramics nice. and these green ceramic products are are made of waste glass and waste textiles so from our perspective that's what we want to be able to do is want to show that it is absolutely feasible mm. to take your waste materials and to to convert those into products like green ceramics um it's so pretty oh, as well you. that's you know I, i think that there's a bit of a misconception that things made mm. out of what is essentially what we've viewed as rubbish mm. can't be attractive yeah and yeah. this is beautiful it's, and it and it doesn't look like it's been intentionally made to look a certain way this is just what those materials look like when yep. they're brought that's, together that's exactly how it comes out of the factory that's a good point you make about you know the fact that people assume that when you make products from waste um that even if it was engineered to have all the right qualities it won't necessarily look that great mm. it's nice when people kind of you know have a look at something like that and yeah. from their eyes um see it as something that they would you know love to have and i and i think to me that's really the ultimate test Yes it's about the science it's mm. about the engineering and all the things that you have to do to get to that point to make a product but let's face it something like this unless and until again users um people who want to use it 
they don't, you know, think that this is something that they would love to have unless and until people sort of feel that, hey, this is beautiful. It is. Um, I, so I if, I, if, if I wanted to say, Tyler, bathroom, yeah. miss, could I just walk into the door of one of your micro factories and go, hello, can you please make me some tiles? Yeah. I, I need them this big, I need them this thick, and I need like maybe 30 of them. Absolutely. And you could turn absolutely. around and say yes. We could absolutely so do that. And and this is this is the lovely thing about these kinds of things that, you know, yes, we've got lots of people who've got, as you can imagine, waste textiles and waste glass and people want to connect and say, great, yeah, we can supply you with these kinds of waste fabrics. And in this case, as you can see in yours, you know, it's it's that that beautiful blue that's gone into making it. So I love the fact that, you know, um, there, there are so many people who can see that a role that we can all play yeah. is by being a part of that supply chain. And when we think about the holistic benefits that we were talking about, mm-hmm. it's about saying it's about that resource, that production, that micro factory in Nara, that ability to then say, this could well be something that is a beginning of a whole new way of thinking about micro yeah. factories. But the most important test, as we've said, is the fact that you're telling me <laughs> that <laughs> this is something you would love to have in your home. I can't thank you enough. But um. it also seems like it's something that is adaptable to different communities, to yeah. the needs, to the kind of waste that is produced in those communities. Yes. And then what end products they need. Is there is there any yes. kind of limit to what micro factories can produce? Oh, look, I would I would imagine that there are no limits and yes part <laughs> of part of it is for me to kind of go you know what maybe there are certain things we do need to you know go back and explore the science if it if it hasn't yet been done there are some things we've obviously progressed in this particular case with glass and textile but it's about the fact that our industry partner who is basically saying in Nara, here's where i want to set it up here's what i want to do and i think to me that's the ultimate test yeah. of what we can do collectively. Yes, as much as we love to collaborate on that, on that science and technological aspects of what all this means, but the real test is how that translates into practical commercial outcomes, which means for a small business, and in Andrew's case, with his, his business of Kandui Technologies, mm. all of this is part and parcel of saying, you know what, yes, it could be a big steel maker. You know, the steel making partner who we work with, Mollycop in Newcastle, um, mind you, they're more than 100 years old. Yeah, wow. <laughs> so, you know, you talk about, uh, you know, old and new, there are no limits yeah. in how you can take technologies that have been seen as very traditional, but to be able to to have a whole new lens on the fact that this is how we can make steel. This is how we can, in this particular case, talk about making our green ceramics for our built environment. You know, yes, there are old industries. You might like to think of them as old, (laughs) but by the time they finish doing what they're doing, they will be pioneering this space. And to do it right here in Australia. If they can be flexible, anyone can. Yes. I think. Yes. And, but I think, but I think, you know, it, it comes down to the fact that at the heart of all of these businesses are people like us. The leadership there and the people who work 
in those spaces are people like us who, who care about these issues. That's what we are really talking about, is incredibly passionate people who, whether you're in research or technology or in production or in design or, or using, I think to me, all of us as people can make a difference. Beautiful. Thank you, Venus, so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you and just hearing your excitement and your passion for the work that you do. I, I know that you were inspired as a child and I'm sure you're inspiring lots of children and adults <laughs> like myself with your work <laughs> as it continues. To follow the program online, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can visit the 100 Climate Conversations exhibition or join us for a live recording. Go to 100climateconversations.com. This is a significant new project for the museum and records of the conversations are going to form a new climate change archive preserved for future generations in the powerhouse collection of over 500,000 objects that tell the stories of our time. <laughs>